Um, just to start us off, I have uh, a couple questions I'd like to ask our panel. Um, the first one is for, for Anne and Steve Walk. Uh, one thing that comes up a lot with the biofuels is the question, well, two things that come up. One is the question of uh, food versus fuel, and the other is energy balance. So if both of you could just very quickly address those issues, that would be great. <laughs> You have to come up here and speak into the mic. Yeah, it's um, a really key question that um, I know probably here, we've certainly seen it in Colorado, price of milk starting to go up, price of beef starting to go up. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a, it's a tricky question. I think there's um, a lot of evidence that the, the farmers are ramping up their production of corn. Um, and that there will be some adjustment in the marketplace over time. Uh, the p uh, focus of NREL and the Department of Energy has been um, to focus in the long run on energy crops that will not compete with f uh, food products. But uh, it is undeniably an issue right now as the market starts to ramp up and the um, emphasis on biofuels and ethanol in particular has been ramping up. Um, you know, we are seeing some of those impacts. So in the near term, um, what we're hoping is that it will start to work its way out. Um, there's even some evidence that we might consider importing um, ethanol from Brazil in the short run. But again, in the long run, what we're looking for is uh, uh, cellulosic materials, uh, woody crops and trees and grasses that would not compete with the food supply. He's going to talk about the energy balance. Sometimes I get asked, you know, does it take more energy or more fuel to make ethanol than it does to produce it, which is absolutely 100% false. It is completely wrong. Ethanol is a win-win situation, and I have countless studies to show that. Um, number two, um, Anne is exactly right. We just opened the first cellulose plant in Louisiana. It's a smaller plant. It's only doing about 25 to 30 million gallons a year, but it's based on switchgrass. And that is really, when you take a look at the ethanol industry, is really kind of where the future is. There's still going to be corn. Corn's already going to be there. Um, but you can strategically place cellulose plants in areas where you can have it coordinated with the supply and demand a lot easier than you can a corn ethanol-based facility. Did that answer your question? Yes. All right. Okay, thanks. I'm going to ask Steve Yabarro one question, and then we'll get to, to all these great folks waiting in the aisles. Uh, Steve, I... Uh, I know that there's been a lot of success with natural gas in other states, in California, Texas, Oklahoma, places like that. Um, why are we seeing that success in certain states, and what can we do to, to see that here in North Carolina? Uh, the, the short answer is probably that in California, uh, they've been far ahead of any of the federal regulations as it relates to air quality. Uh, they've taken a much more aggressive stance in their uh, management of sources, their transportation policies. They've put in some mandates, but along with their mandates, they've also been very aggressive about putting in funding. Uh, every time you register a vehicle or you go to get a license or your registration, there's a lot of different fees that are associated. Uh, but what they don't do is they don't allow those fees to be uh, taken off by other departments of their government. They stay in the local air quality management district, so every fee that is assessed on a license plate, for example, uh, for air quality reasons, goes back to that same air quality management district and must be spent on those things. So they're spending a lot of money. I think it's good that North Carolina has the, uh, the CFAT program, which I'm sure you'll hear more about. 
Uh, the other states, it's been an aggressive push to basically adopt California policies uh, in terms of uh, like EPA emissions requirements are less than CARB, California Air Resources uh, Board. Uh, there are now, I believe, 11 states that are actually adopting the CARB standards instead of EPA. And what that's doing is it's forcing people to move forward. But at the same time, I think the carrot and the stick is both a good, uh, good example. Uh, one quick example would be here that um, one kind of mandate that makes sense that helps bring the market forward is if an airport were to say to the various types of fleets that serve it, like um, shuttle fleets or taxi fleets, that we will either reduce your access fees or give you uh, preferred access, front of the line access. These are the kinds of things that are the kind of carrot and stick programs that work very well and it's working with a lot of West Coast uh, airports. Uh, 16 airports in the West Coast have that kind of program and it has very quickly ramped up very successful programs. Thank you. Uh, a couple of people have mentioned the CFAT program, and I don't know if someone's going to talk about that later, but if you don't know about it, uh, there, there is a, a grant program for fuels, uh, not for fuels, for ve alternative vehicles infrastructure, idle reduction, and um, emissions reduction. And uh, if, if you want to know more about it, if you go to the Solar Center table uh, that's right out, it's outside, um, you can get information on that. There's a call for projects right now that's open until July 16th and there'll be another one next year. So if you don't know about that already, you can talk to me or Ann or Jason or uh, someone, and we'd love to talk to you more about it. It's only good in uh, counties that are in non-attainment, so it's not good uh, for everyone, but certainly for a good portion of the state. All right, let's have our first question. Thank you for waiting so patiently. Oh, I don't think that's turned on. Can you? What's that? Much better. <laughs> Thank that. you. My name is Al Wade. I'm with Public Policy Virginia. And I have a question for Ann. And while she's walking to the uh, mic, I'd also like to comment on the question you asked her earlier. I'm a farmer as well as someone involved in public policy. And I always get a little bit uh, angry when people say, well, aren't food costs going to go up a little bit? There hadn't been a farmer in this country making money and producing food in the last 30 years. And maybe that's a good thing. And why do we think that the transition to a, a renewable energy economy is going to be cost-free? And how can we share that cost? And if a little bit of that is shared in our food prices, it won't hurt most of us to eat a little bit less food, I suspect. <laughs> so I think it's pretty positive. Let's not be uh, self-conscious about the impact on food costs. But a more precise question for you, Ms. Brennan. I had a conversation with a fuel jobber who uh, is based in, uh, in Hampton Roads in the Norfolk Port area in Virginia. He sells millions of tons of, of oil a year to the Navy and to uh, commercial ships uh, uh, leaving out of, of that port. And he said up until very recently, they had no trouble blending biodiesel into marine fuels. And, but recently, the government prohibited that, and they can no longer uh, put biodiesel into the standard marine fuels. He didn't really know why, the, why, why that was, and I'm just curious whether you know of that and whether you know why that might be. Uh, no, I don't. Um, I don't. I don't know why that is. Um, and I'm just wondering, there are several representatives of the biodiesel industry. I don't know if anybody else uh, knows. Okay, I'll I stumped you. find out if you want to... <laughs> yeah, you, I'd like uh, to know. Because it represents... I mean, there's a big biodiesel fuel plant in Virginia, not very far from the Norfolk uh, ports, 
and it's a potentially really monster market. Right. Uh, and for farmers to produce the, the crops that will feed these biodiesel plants, that kind of market makes a lot of sense. Well, if you It, 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 a comment, it might be, it might have to do with the fact that marine fuel can still run at 3,000 parts per million, which is a very heavy, very thick fuel. Uh, it's, a, it's not a fuel that blends easily the same way that diesel that you have out in the street right now, which up until recently was only 300 parts per million, and it's now down to 15 parts per million. So bunker fuel that they use in, in ships pours like syrup. And they have to preheat it. So I don't know if there's a blending issue. I'm just taking a guess. Well, his, his comment on it, and this is a man who sells this, I don't know, you know what is, if he's a petroleum engineer or anything, was that we'd been doing it for, for a number of years. As the fuel prices made sense, we could blend it and sell it to the Navy and sell it to the commercial fleets, and now we can't do it anymore. So I'm just curious. Yeah. I, what I would recommend is you get in touch with um, the Hampton Roads Clean Clean Fuels Co Coalition or Clean Cities Coalition up there. Chelsea Jenkins is the person. I can give you her contact information. If she doesn't know, she'll be able to help you find out. All right, next question, please. If you could introduce yourself, that'd be great. Uh, hi, my name is Kathy Kaufman, and I'm uh, currently masquerading as a DAQ employee. Um, <laughs> I live in an area of the Triangle where B100 is very readily accessible. And what I've been wondering and have had trouble finding is emissions information for B100 both um, especially NOx and carbon and compared to diesel and compared to low sulfur diesel. And I'm wondering, I guess a question for Ann, uh, what information you've got or, or is out there? Um, again, as I said, it's um, not much. There's, uh, it's just not uh, that common a blend that's in use. So the, the studies that we've seen don't have uh, much. We certainly, we haven't published anything with B100 results. Are you planning on publishing anything on that? Um, the, the current um, activity that I was talking about, the EPA is leading. Um, I, I don't know. I can find out that question, too, if uh, B100. I, I haven't heard that that's a part of what they're focusing on, but um, I might be wrong about that. Okay. Thanks. I think if you go uh, to, the, to our Clean Cities booth, we have a biodiesel fact sheet, and I believe it has a chart on it that has B20 and B100 for emissions information I think that information came from the EPA, but I can't remember. It would be listed on that sheet. Okay, I've seen one table, and that might be the one, but it, when, okay, okay, thanks. Right, it, that's true, but people are still using it. <laughs> Steve was just telling me that it's not warranty, you know, no, nothing is warranted for B100, but as we all know, it, it is being used, and it, certainly in the triangle area, it is um, very easily accessible. Thank you for your question. Hi, I'm Melissa McCullough with the EPA Office of Air Quality Planning and Standards. And I, um, one of the, I was reading an article recently that was talking about methane, waste methane to um, power generation, but I was wondering, since North Carolina has an abundance of pork and poultry producers, <laughs> we could very easily become the Saudi Arabia of methane if we were working on the technology. So is anybody working on that and where is it? Yes, uh, it's a great question. Actually, biomethane, uh, which is really getting down to pure methane by the time it's being pulled from the landfill, uh, this is already being looked at. One of the reasons that you're seeing it being used for power is that there's currently a federal tax incentive. It's been around since 1993, I think, that actually provides a penny per kilowatt hour for the use of biomethane pulled from a landfill um, and then burned in a generator or some sort of cogeneration facility. 
we are working right now, I say we, my, my counterparts, the lobbying folks, um, there's three of them, I do this stuff, they do the other. Uh, they're trying to get that same kind of credit for any use of the methane being pulled from landfills. Uh, and, and it's just at the right timing because the major players in that industry have found that they've already, they've already hit most of the major landfill projects with power generation that makes sense because it doesn't make sense just to sell power. You have to use the thermal energy coming off that generator. And that means finding someone close by like a, a chemical processing factory or something. So it's a really good use. To the second part of your question, uh, we just started about uh, four months ago with a, a technology. There's two or three players in this technology, but uh, you can pull landfill gas, which is already being done anyway. It's either being flared or running a generator because uh, you don't want methane going into the air. It's very highly reactive. Uh, that what they're doing is they're actually liquefying it on site with a, uh, a technology. The company's called Prometheus Energy. There's another one called Acreon Technologies, and I believe there's a third, and I can't remember the name. They actually make LNG. They clean it up. They use carbon dioxide sequestration technologies, but what they do is they make a very pure methane, and what they're doing with that facility, it's one unit, it produces up to 5,000 gallons of LNG a day, currently it's putting out about 1,800, um, and that is being shipped right down the road to Orange County Transit Authority, which has 450 LNG buses. So that's a great example, and it would work great not only on landfills, but um, methane coming from large water sewage treatment plants, which are currently being used to run generators that run the pumps. Uh, dairy waste is another great area to do this because you can you get digesters. And then you get to the last, which is the cellulosic uh, decomposition. If it's not ethanol, you can make biomethane. Our estimate is that you can get up to about 8 billion gallons of LNG produced if we were to go after every available landfill that is large enough to make that an economic story. Next question. Good morning, I'm Ann Gillum with the Southern Alliance for Clean Energy and this is another emissions question for Ms. Brennan. Um, one, of your, uh, one of your slides on emissions reduction had the 10 to 25 percent reduction in particulate matter. Could you clarify um, whether that is um, for B20 or B100 and if it's uh, with comparing it to ultra low sulfur diesel fuel or lo low sulfur fuel? If I'm remembering my slides right, um, I had one that was, uh, showed real test results that was with uh, both B5 and B20 in um, blending with ultra-low sulfur diesel. Uh, back up, keep backing, uh, right there. This is the one that was blended with ultra-low sulfur diesel in a, a DPF-equipped uh, Cummins engine. That was not a vehicle test, that was on the engine stand. Um, so that was the range um, that we found the 20% uh, to 70% reduction, the higher reductions with the higher um, concentration of biodiesel. My question was specific to uh, biodiesel over ultra-low sulfur diesel fuel, and I think it was a couple slides back. It was a 10 well, to 25% well, reduction, not, not a B20 blend with ultra-low sulfur diesel fuel, necessarily, but comparing that to ultra-low sulfur diesel fuel emissions and then a biodiesel blend comparison. I think I, uh, that was just a word slide, the other place where I had emissions right that, here. Is that what you're thinking about? Yes. Um, you, you know, that's, that's represented uh, just a range that's been um, found in the literature. So there's a really wide range of types of data in there. Um, different comparisons, different engines, different fuels, 
uh, different drive cycles. So, um, you know, I'd have to go back and look at the individual studies to answer that question. Would that be on the website? Uh, we, were, we get a lot of questions in our organization on now that ultra-low sulfur diesel fuel is regularly available, how right. does a B20 blend compare compare to it? And, and I don't have the answer to that question right. and really looking for some studies to show us that. Yeah, I think there's um, certainly more limited data on that. Um, and I'd have, again, I'd have to go back. I don't remember the, in the specific study, um, I'd, I'd have to go back and look at the specifics. To, if you want to give me your card, I'd be happy to follow up. Great, thank you. Um, we have time for just about these last two questions, so. All right. I was wondering Can if you introduce yourself, please? What? Introduce yourself, Oh, please. I'm Elizabeth Houghton. Um, I was wondering if there were any biodiesel tax credits that applied specifically to school buses? The, uh, the biodiesel tax credits are good for biodiesel no matter what it's used in, so it's not specific to school buses. But is there another... Uh, tax credit specifically for school buses that could augment the other tax credits? Not right now there isn't. It's a good idea. Okay. <laughs> Any legislators in the room want to run with it? That'd be great. Not for the fuel. Not for the fuel. There, there's a tax credit for the vehicle itself in the Clean School Bus USA program. You, what did you say? There's, there's, a, there's a tax credit for the actual bus itself, which is a, I'm sorry, I said a tax credit wrong. Um, there is a grant program called the Clean School Bus USA program, which is funded very low. It's only going to it's only have $7 million in it this year. It's authorized at $55 million, but Congress never gives as much money as they promise. Uh, it's $7 million, and it's a competitive grant process. Those grants are going out through what are called the Diesel Emissions Reduction Collaboratives. There's nine of them in the U.S., one that covers this area. I'm sure you're familiar with it. Um, but that can offer uh, upwards of 40 to 45 percent of the cost of the actual bus, but you're competing with about two or 300 other school districts when going after it. And it doesn't apply to the fuel, but I believe it helps provide some money for the fueling infrastructure if you're putting like a new tank for B100 or B blend, uh, B20 blending. All right. Good morning. <coughs> My name is Bill Wallen. I'm a <coughs> representative of Texas Refinery Corporation. And I'm also one of your green sponsors here, so I hope everybody will stop by my booth. <laughs> technically, technically, I am a preventive maintenance and fuel stabilization specialist uh, representing Texas Refinery out of Fort Worth, Texas. And my customer is the person who owns the equipment or even manages it, sort of the end, the end user, if I may say. In the past year, I have accumulated uh, two retailers here in the state of North Carolina. Uh, both are with me today. Uh, Steve Jarrett in Salisbury is the first in the state to be treating biodiesel uh, bio as well as uh, ultra-low sulfur. Uh, David Heath of Oakboro Oil Company is also treating uh, his biodiesel and ultra-low sulfur. My question is this, and probably to Steve, is there any tax incentives uh, for uh, anybody using a fuel treatment to lower emissions? Uh, the reason for it being uh, our treatments, uh, even though they're for specialty maintenance and to lower maintenance cost and uh, uh, reduce downtime, the end result to the state of North Carolina is it lowers emissions in diesel fuel as well as um, gasoline. Uh, we have several products 
And so that's what I'm looking for to help to bring in more of the uh, additive that we have that is also EPA approved. It's uh, uh, Cummings L10 deposit test proven, uh, has a, a CRC rating of less than 10. I'm, I, I could go on and on and on. But it is a maintenance product for the person who has the end user. Do, do any of you know of any tax credits? There's going to be another, yeah, there are no tax credits for additives. But there's going to be another panel later this afternoon specifically on policies. So um, that maybe that issue will come up again, again Good. at Thank that you. point. Thank you. All right, last question. Please introduce yourself. Yes, I'm Derek Gortman with Gortman Biofuel. Uh, on the tax incentives, I don't know if y'all are aware that the large oil companies... Can you speak a little closer uh, to the microphone? Please? The large oil companies are starting to try to come on board on the biodiesel side of the tax credit by uh, blending uh, ConocoPhillix, for one, blending a small percentage of animal fat with their diesel to be able to, to consume the tax credit that they were getting. And as you probably know, there's only like $46 million or so that was allocated for the tax credits. So them being a big company, you can imagine how quick this will consume the tax credit that is allocated for us as producers and retailers. I mean, it's, it's really to all of because all of y'all are in the same tax credit yeah. deal with the biodiesel as well as ethanol and Natural gas. Go ahead, go ahead. I'll address that. Um, the natural gas and propane tax credits are not specifically funded at a specific level. They're not part of the same as biodiesel. Biodiesel came out of the Jobs Act of 2004. The, the point that you're discussing, though, is called the Renewable Fuel Standard. And yesterday, yes. yesterday morning, IRS released the guidelines for that, which is talking about using biodiesel. Um, and they're not specific to animal fat versus vegetable uh, uh, virgin oils. Uh, but they're talking about providing that as a blended uh, fuel at the refinery. And that is of, you know, people at NBB, the National Biodiesel Board, are going apoplectic right now. Um, this is very scary for that industry because it's talking about using the fuel at the refinery as long as there's a polymerization process under pressure with heat. And what that's going to do is that's going to make that fuel available to take the credit. Now the guidelines, they're going to have to come out for IRS to actually tell you how to do it. If they do it any kind of speed that they've done with anything else, you'll see the guidelines in a year, year and a half. Um, right now on your side, you've got a whole lot of farmers from North Carolina, Iowa, and a lot of other places that are taking this up on the hill uh, because this was not meant to be a credit that went to blenders at that level. Right. But it, that's, but the, it's a really big issue because the yeah. RFS if it goes through and it gets that kind of understanding, they're going to be able to buy a lot more of it on the market than you can. You're going to be competing for the bushels of soy, right. and you're going to be able to find a much higher economy of scale at a refinery than you could ever do at a blending facility. Well, it did go through the IRS. It's just waiting on the Treasury now. Yeah, it's, uh, IRS has got it, but they have to actually come out with very specific rules, and we've been waiting 19 months for them to come out with specific rules about the station credit for us, and we still don't have them. Okay. 